So we are here with our bonus podcast episode for those of you who have purchased the VIP all access pass. Um, And we are talking today with Chrissy all about investing for your kids outside of an RESP. So maybe you've already kind of tapped that RESP, but what do you do if you have more money or uh, different options that you have sort sort of thing. So Chrissy is the blogger behind Eat, Sleep, Breathe 5. She eats, sleeps, and breathes five financial independence. She's particularly passionate about helping her fellow Canadians discover and start their journey to fi or fire. And when Christy's not blogging, she enjoys spending time with her husband, teenage boys, and their Shiba Inu, Mika. So Christy, I'm so excited to be talking to you today about today's topic because I don't really know a lot about this. So I'm so glad that you were here. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. I'm so excited for this new conference and the summit for women. I think it's so needed and I'm so happy you put it together. Awesome. So when, let's just start from the basics, like when would someone consider investing outside of an RESP? So the first thing I want to start off with saying is that I think RESPs are so, uh, such a great tool. And if you haven't maxed one out, I think that's the first thing that you should do because it's free money from the government. And unless you're a hundred percent sure your kids aren't going to go to post-secondary. Uh, I think that's a, a great account that you should focus on maxing that out first and get that free government grant money. And then once that's maxed out, then it's a good time to consider uh, these accounts that uh, we're going to talk about today. They're called informal trusts. They're also known as ITF accounts, and they are the next step that I would suggest people look into if uh, they have excess money that they want to invest for their kids, things like birthday money or any casual jobs that they might work at, or uh, even the CCB, the, the Canada Child's Fund. Is that what it is? Benefit. benefit. <laughs> the benefit, yes. Benefit. Sorry. So there is all kinds of money that can go into these accounts and, and be invested. And the huge advantage of them is that uh, there are tax advantages in that uh, the income is taxed to whoever puts the money in, which is usually the parent or a grandparent. And then the capital gains are taxed in the hands of the child. So that is uh, the biggest benefit of these accounts and why a lot of people consider them. So just to kind of back up, if people are listening and you're like, well, I'm kind of confused with an RESP, which is a registered education savings plan. Um, It is a registered plan or a registered um, account from the government. There is a session on RESPs in this summit talking about how to invest in them and drawing down from them. And there is a bonus in a bonus masterclass all about RESP basics as part of the VIP all access as well. So if you're kind of like, whoa, I think this is too advanced for me or I'm not there yet. Go look at those resources and then come and watch this or listen to this, I should say again, um, because there is some great stuff here. So Chrissy, you've talked about some of those benefits uh, as far as taxation goes. What are some of the downsides of an informal trust? There are some downsides that are brought up online in the various websites that you might come across. And usually they're from a bank or from a lawyer. And a lot of it is... uh, it sounds pretty scary. You know, they say things like you'll lose control once your child reaches legal age because at legal age, they are allowed to access the funds. It becomes their account fully. Uh, but uh, I spoke to my financial planner who's very he's very experienced with these accounts and he's largely uh, helped me to 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 take away these fears about these accounts and that uh, in his experience, some of the downsides that are put out there don't necessarily exist and um, that 
you are you can feel quite comfortable using those. So so one of the downsides, as I mentioned, is that people fear that the child can take over the account when they're 18, take all the money out and buy a sports car or something like that. So that is one of the fears. And uh, another fear is that uh, these accounts are irrevocable. So that means that once you assign a beneficiary to these accounts, which you must do in order to state who the child is that you're investing for, uh, that you can't change it and you can never get the money out. It's always theirs forever. And so these are two of the things that are uh, quite scary for people to deal with. But again, uh, my financial planner confirmed that he's worked with these accounts for decades and that there are safeguards in place to uh, ensure that these issues aren't major issues. For example, when the child reaches legal age, even though legally they're entitled to the money, you are still the trustee on the account. And so most or, or all financial institutions that hold these accounts, they will request that both the trustee and the beneficiary sign off on any withdrawals and any changes to the accounts. And so that's one of the safeguards that's in place to prevent that. And the other safeguard is that the issue with being it irre irrevocable is that even if that were the case, that it's only for the benefit of the child that you use the money, if parents need it to withdraw it and then use it in their accounts to pay for a child's needs, they could prove that quite easily because most parents, they spend a lot of money on their kids. And it, it, it's almost undoubtable that you'll have enough expenses that you've used towards the kids that you could say that whatever funds came out of these accounts, they were used for the kids regardless. So I would say to consult with your own experts, but the expert that I work with, <laughs> he feels quite comfortable and uh, saying that these downsides may not be as scary or uh, as true as others may make them out to be. I wonder why people, there is such fear mongering around this. I think it's because these people who, who write these uh, articles, a lot of times they, this is their business and you have to be so careful. And if this is what they do for a living um, and they're advising people in such a general way on the internet, they can't be saying things that are too specific because I, I would assume that there are certain situations where someone may not have set up the account properly or maybe there are some dishonest family members who may actually try to take advantage and use these funds incorrectly. So my assumption is that just because something could go wrong, they would rather say that these things could happen, even though in reality, they're highly unlikely or maybe even never happen. But it's, I think, just the possibility putting it out there that these things could happen. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so I do not have an informal trust for our kids. We have RESPs, um, but right now we're just using some TFSA room because there's no taxes there. You kind of get that contribution room back when you withdraw. The following year you get it back. So it's kind of like a win-win is what we see. So do I need to set up an informal trust or should I just be keep using my TFSA? Like what? That's kind of where we're stuck. Yeah, I, I don't I think what you're doing is great. If you have room in your TFSA, go for it. I, I don't see what the uh, you don't need to change anything if that's the situation and you, you'll continue to have room to shelter this money for your children, then uh, it's not a problem. 
the issue is when some people, they end up maxing out their TFSA and they have no other tax sheltered room to keep the money in, then that's when you want to consider this these accounts because you have no more TFSA room in your own accounts and then your RESPs are full, then yeah, these accounts are the next best choice for kids' money. And like you said, they're not tax sheltered at all. There is tax events that occur with these accounts. Yes, exactly. They're non-registered accounts. So they're they're taxed similarly to most non-registered accounts in that there is, if you receive any income from these accounts, that's annual. And then you would need to pay tax report report on your income tax and pay tax on it annually. But uh, capital gains, they are not realized until you sell the assets that are in the account. So it's very similar to non-registered accounts, regular non-registered accounts. It's just there's that extra bit of complexity in that there's a separation in who income is attributed to and who the capital gains is attributed to. And the income would be things like dividends. So if I did non-dividend bearing stocks, then there would potentially be no income. Exactly. And that is one of the tactics for using these accounts is you want to avoid anything that pays out a lot of income, such as dividends or interest, because then you have this ongoing tax drag throughout the years that you're invested. Whereas if you invest for growth, where most of it is capital gains or all of it is capital gains, then you can avoid that constant bleed of money where you're paying taxes on this income that you don't need or maybe don't want when the child is young. Can I set up an informal trust on my own or is this this something that I have to work with a professional for? You absolutely can do it on your own. I I did this when um, my kids were really little. And I before I started working with my financial planner, I did it on my own. I set it up at first at Scotia iTrade. That was who I started investing with. And then when I moved to Questrade, I transferred those accounts in kind to them. And it was no problem at both institutions to set them up. And I managed them on my own, just like my own non-registered accounts. So it's no problem. It's easy to DIY and there's no fees to do it. Awesome. That was my next question is if there's any fees. (laughs) Yes, there's no fees. I, I mean, of course, it's the regular fees that might be charged by your brokerage if there's inactivity fees or any transaction fees. But other than that, they're they're not some kind of special account where you need to pay an ongoing fee or anything like that. Well, this, you're converting me. I think this is where we're eventually going to go. <laughs> okay. How much yeah, they're, burden, they're great accounts. Yeah. Uh, sorry. How much of a burden is the record keeping? So this is something that it really depends on how you manage the account. So it depends on how optimized you want to get with it. So for example, even though I am a hyper optimizer, I like everything optimized to the the nth degree, I've decided not to do that with these accounts. So for example, what you could do is the Canada Child Benefit, the CCB, it can be legally and 100% uh, attributed to your kids. So it's it's not your money. It can be 100% their money and you could invest it. And then all the income and all the capital gains would be taxed in their hands because legally the government says that it's their money, not yours, and you can do that. And same with what's called second generation income. So when you invest their money and then whatever income comes out of the money that's invested is the children's money. So that is called second generation income. And that is also free and clear their money. It's not your money. It's no longer attributed to you. But the problem with all that is that you have to keep very clear records and you cannot co-mingle the funds that are attributed to them with funds that are not. So you would have to have two accounts then. You would need to have one account with the money that, for instance, includes gift money or, you know, 
money they earn from casual jobs. So that has to be in its own account. And then if it throws off any secondary second generation income, then you could take that income out and then invest it in the second account, which includes the CCB, the Canada Child Benefit. So you would have two separate accounts and then you'd have to make sure you have records to show all this income that comes in where it comes from. And then it goes directly into these specific accounts and which account it went into. And so you can see how it could get complicated. Whereas if you kept just one account, it's a lot simpler because you just attribute it all the regular way, which is income to you, the parent, and then the capital gains to the child. And you don't have to keep all that extra level of record keeping. But uh, it again, it totally depends how you want to handle it. And if you did keep it simple, all you'd have to do is report the income every year on your own tax return. Or if you're the grandparent, same thing. You just report the income on your tax return. You'll get the T-slips every year. You'll get T3s and T5s and you just report appropriately. And then when it comes time to sell the assets or the investments in the informal trust, then you would report the capital gains in the child's hands. So it's pretty minimal as far as record keeping if you keep it simple. Yeah, I think that's definitely the way to go. It sounds a little very confusing the other way. Yeah. <laughs> can anybody open one of these accounts or does it have to be a family member or can you open it for anybody? Um, and could you have more than one informal trust for a child? So could I open one for my children and maybe their grandparents open one for them? Like, could there be multiples? Is there any benefits to that? So as far as I know, anyone can open an informal trust for any child. So it doesn't have to be a relative. It could be a family friend. It could be uh, any kind of relative. It could be aunt, uncle, parents, grandparents, a sibling, a much older sibling. It, it could be different people. So as from all the research I've done, this is what I've discovered. And same thing with opening multiple accounts. Uh, as far as I know, I have not come across anything that says there can only be one informal trust per child, but there can only be one beneficiary per account. You cannot have uh, two siblings on the same account, for instance. You have to have one, only one child with uh, one or two trustees, usually. That's usually how it works. So that's different than a family RESP. So you'd actually have to have the separate ones. So yes, there are family RESPs where siblings can be on the same account and share the funds to a point. But yeah, with, with these informal trusts, there can only be one beneficiary, as, as far as I can tell. Can there be multiple contributors? Or is it like I know with the RESP, for example, I can, if I'm the one who set it up, then I can be the only one that contributes to it. Um, every end money kind of has to flow through me to that. But with an informal trust, could anybody contribute to it if they had the account information? So it's the same thing as an RESP. And this is because of the money laundering rules or uh, issues with money laundering. If a third party contributes to these accounts, so it always has to be the trustees. And that's the person. Or people who open the account. And usually I would assume it's one or two parents or grandparents who would do that. So everything is considered to have been given to that person or people and then put into this account. So yeah, it, it can't not be that a third party directly puts it into the account. And usually the contributor is the trustee is how these are set up sort of thing. Yeah. So they're different from formal trusts and we're, we're 
where the formal trusts, they have a lot more sort of terms for the different roles that different people might play. So informal trusts are different that way in that the contributor and the trustee are the same person. And as well as a settler, there's a term for formal trust where there's a settler. It's the person who opens the trust. And so they don't even have that term for informal trust. But yeah, the it, they're simpler that way in that the contributor and trustee are the same person. And formal trusts, um, I think from my understanding, cost a lot more and you need someone to kind of help you with that process. It's not something that you can do on your own to set up. Exactly. It's a lawyer would need to be involved. And so they cost money to open up. They're not terribly expensive. I think it's $1,000 or so to open one. And then there may be some ongoing annual fees if you need someone to help you manage it after that. But uh, yeah, they're not free, but they offer a lot more control if that's what you're looking for and uh, more options as far as For instance, if you want to control when the child will have access to the funds, you could determine what age they get it. And uh, I'm sure there are lots of other options that I'm not listing here. But yes, if you're looking for more control and you want more certainty around these funds and how they're handled, then you may want to consider a formal trust. And formal trusts, I think also not to get into too far down the weeds of formal trusts, they don't have to necessarily only be for kids. Like I think you can have like family trusts and there's all sorts of things you can do for money sheltering kind of management as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, they are a whole different world where if you're looking for like I said, more control and also tax sheltering and different tax advantages, then yes, a, a trust, different kinds of trusts will do different kinds of things. And it, it, you would need to consult a lawyer to do this. And I think there are some new changes coming in the Canadian system of, around trusts and how they're handled. So uh, you may want to look into it and see what kind of changes because they may affect your decision making. Will those uh, new changes affect informal trusts? So as far as I know, it does not appear so, but it's not clear yet because I believe that these changes are either just coming through now or or they they are about to. So at the moment, it doesn't seem to be clear. But from what I've heard and from talking to, to my financial planner, it seems like these will most likely not be affected because they're a whole other category. Like they, even though they're both trusts, they're, they're not any they're not the same as formal trusts and not under the same kind of rules and regulations as, as formal trusts may be. So that'd be a definitely keep watching and to be determined um, kind of thing. But yeah, no, they're, they sound very different. Um, I think the trust is like, as far as the name goes, is one of the only similarities because there is taxes that go as they go sort of thing, right? So um, so what mistakes can someone, so if I'm going to open one of these, I think you're slowly convincing me. I mean, not yet, but <laughs> time and kind of is a thing. Um, I'm ready to open one. What are some mistakes that someone should avoid or could make when they're opening um, one of these informal trust accounts? I would say if you're not the most organized person, this uh, you'd have to learn how to be really good with your record keeping. And this is not just with these accounts, but any non-registered account, because you can't just willy nilly buy and sell things in a non-registered account without keeping records like you can in an RSP or TFSA, because you don't have to track your trades or your adjusted cost basis in those accounts because it's all tax sheltered and it comes out in the wash. It it just comes out as, as income and and TFSAs, you're not taxed anyway. So it doesn't matter in those accounts. You don't have to track these kinds of things, but in non-registered accounts, you have to track 
any buys and sells and all the income needs to be reported. So there is a certain level of record keeping that you have to maintain. And so one of the mistakes would be not keeping careful track of your records, because imagine if it was, say, 18 years worth of investing in one of these accounts and you didn't keep any records and you buy you were buying and selling multiple times and you lost those papers and now it's time to report capital gains and it would just be a major headache. And so especially if you got really complex with these uh, accounts. So that's another thing that I think could be a mistake if you're getting too complicated with investments, just like any non-registered account, you're just setting yourself up for a, a record keeping nightmare. If you have maybe say 10 different investments in here, and some of them pay dividends, and some of them pay interest, and some don't pay anything, and you're selling them and buying them at different times, it, it could be a lot to keep track of. And so I think with these accounts and any non-registered account, it's a good idea to keep it as simple as possible just to save yourself these headaches. Uh, another mistake that people could make with these accounts is letting the investments grow too big without crystallizing the gains. And crystallizing the gains, in case people aren't aware of this, it, what it is, is you're basically selling the investments every once in a while in order to to crystallize the gains, which means realizing the gains. And so that what that does is it increases your cost basis to a new level while the child is still in, say, a zero tax bracket. And that's how these accounts, the, the investments in these accounts can essentially grow tax-free. Uh, yes, you'll pay tax on the on the income, but you won't owe any taxes on the capital gains because if you keep uh, crystallizing the gains while the child, when they're small and when it's not enough to trigger or, or to push them into a tax bracket where they owe any tax, then you'll grow this these investments and continue to raise the cost basis to grow with the account so that when you when you eventually turn the investments over to the child, that they are close enough to whatever the gain would be that there's very little tax or no tax owing. And so that's one of the mistakes that people make is let letting the investments grow and not monitoring it and seeing where how often they might be able to crystallize the gains. And so my financial advisor, he suggests every 10 to $20,000 in gains, you might want to look at crystallizing it. And it basically kind of resets the clock as if you bought those investments again at that on that date. And Something people ask me about when doing this crystallizing the gains uh, maneuver, if you want to call it that, is they're worried. Uh, they've heard about, for instance, capital losses when you sell an investment and then rebuy it right away, then the CRA will disallow the capital losses. You won't be allowed to claim it. It's called a superficial loss where you sell an investment and rebuy it the next day or within 30 days. So with capital gains crystallizing or harvesting, this is not the case because you're not reporting a loss. It's just a capital gain. And so that's something that people don't need to worry about. I, I do that get that question. And I just want to clarify that that's not an issue here with this type of tactic. That's a good um, good thing to think about. So just to, I'm just going to kind of walk through this capital gains crystallization because I know I had to like read about it and learn about it like 50 times. So it makes sense. So <laughs> and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So I, I bought something, let's say I have $10,000 worth of a stock and that $10,000 goes up to $20,000. I would sell it the next day, let's say, or whatever, buy it again at that $20,000. And that $10,000 in difference would be a capital gain. But because my child $10,000 would be in the minimal tax bracket. It's still, there's no tax on that. Then there would be no taxable event at that. And now they owe it, they own it at the 20,000, but really I've only put 10,000 of my own money in or sort of thing. And it goes up and I can continue kind of wash, rinse and repeat sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. 
it's just, it's a tax minimization strategy and it just, it works beautifully if you are monitoring the investments and making sure that you're not letting it grow so big that it becomes, for instance, a hundred thousand dollar capital gain. And then, then you really have a, a major tax liability on your hands there. So yeah, so as long as you're keeping an eye on things and and constantly checking to to watch for when you might want to crystallize the gains, then you'll be just fine and you'll you'll keep the taxes to nothing or, or very minimal number. And unlike other um, registered accounts, or not other, but unlike registered accounts, there's no limits on informal trust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's another advantage to these accounts in that you're not limited. There's no maximum contribution that say with RESPs, it's $50,000 lifetime per per child. But with with these, there is there is no limit that you, you can put as much money as you want in there. I don't know if people have that much money for their kids where it exceeds that much, but some people do, right? So um, th- that's a, a great advantage of these accounts. And it, in addition, the other advantage is you can use this money for whatever the child wants or needs, unlike an RESP, which can only be used for educational purposes. For instance, if you want to help your child save their money towards a down payment one day, this is a great way to do that. Or for other future goals, maybe it's traveling, maybe it's uh, higher education beyond the the four years that they might do, whatever it may be, you can use it for whatever they want, or you want them to use it for. And there are no limitations. You don't have to prove what you're spending it on. It's, it's just cash that they can take and use. Okay. So if I'm ready to open one, can you kind of explain the process? Walk me through the steps saying from the point of like, I'm ready. Now, what do I do? Can you walk me through those steps? Very basic, very simple so that if someone listening to this or even myself, because I'm eventually going to do this, <laughs> I can follow along and kind of what are those action steps. So it it actually is really easy. So your brokerage or your financial institution will will walk you through this. It's, it's just like opening any non-registered account. You, you ask your brokerage, say, I want to open an informal trust or an ITF account, and they will give you the paperwork that you need to fill out. And in my experience, it's just like, any non-registered account that you might open, except there may be a few extra fields where you have to add the beneficiary and you may uh, be asked to add their SIN number for tax purposes. So there are there are different uh, fields that may appear on the forms that are for these accounts. But in general, they are just like any non-registered account, very straightforward to open, unlike RESPs, which take a mountain of paperwork and a lot of waiting and a lot of time. So these are a lot faster, a lot easier to open. So as I said, your brokerage or financial institution, they will walk you through it. And it's it's pretty straightforward. And if you have questions, you can ask them. And then once the account is open, uh, you can transfer money into the account and then start investing just like your regular non-registered account. And then every year you will receive T3s and or T5s at tax time. And you will just need to file those appropriately, depending on whether it's income that should be taxed under you or uh, if it's capital gains, then you just hold on to that paperwork. And then when you're ready to crystallize the gains one day, then you would probably want to refer to that paperwork just to make sure your numbers are, are all aligned. And that's pretty much it. It's pretty straightforward. So you don't have to report anything for the child, obviously, unless there's a sale. Exactly. Uh, however, if it is, if you did decide to take it to that level where you open that other account where it's just their money, then yes, you would have to report the income for them. Uh, and this is the account where it's just the money that's attributed to them, which is the Canada Child Benefit or uh, an inheritance. That's a big one. An inheritance is 100% uh, the child's money. And so 
that is where one instance where I would say it's it may be worth opening a second ITF account or informal trust just to hold the inheritance. And then you can also throw then the Canada Child Benefit in there. And uh, and if they yeah, so that kind of money and second generation income, those those types of that type of money can go into the second account. And in that case, any income that came off of that account would have to be reported by the child every year. Awesome. Well, this has been super informative. This is going to be something that I make my husband listen to um, and probably my parents because they have accounts for ki- their, the kids, kind of just in a savings account. Um, but yeah, this has been very, very informative, Chrissy. So thank you for kind of walking through it, making it very simple to understand. Um, where can people connect with you if they want to learn more, maybe about informal trust? I know you're definitely, you're, you're an expert, but not an expert, I guess, kind of thing. Um, you're very <laughs> yes, knowledgeable yeah. about them or just want to know more about your journey or that sort of thing. How can people connect with you? Well, I, I know that maybe for, for me, it seems pretty straightforward, these accounts, because I've talked about them and I've written about them enough and I've experienced it myself. But if a lot of these details kind of went over your head or you, you want to review them at a slower pace. I did write a post about these. And so they're on my blog and you can just search informal trust on my blog. You you'll be able to find a really long, really detailed post with even more details than we've covered here. And I I answer a lot of the questions that people have sent me and that I've been asked. And I had the help of my financial planner to check through the answers to make sure that they are correct. And based on his experience, uh, whether these questions and these fears that people have are true or not. And so if you want to, you can look up that article on my site and you'll get far more details than even we covered here. And I, I hope we didn't confuse anyone. I hope it was straightforward and that you're encouraged to consider these accounts. Uh, other than that, uh, I have lots of other info on my blog about all kinds of things to do with financial independence. Uh, I was on, um, and my blog is Eat, Sleep, Breathe, Fi, as Maria mentioned, but uh, I was also on a podcast, which is now sadly over. Uh, it was called Explore FI Canada, but Maria was a guest on there and the archives are still up. If you want to listen, you can check out Maria's interview and lots of other interviews we did. But other than that, that's where I am. And um, you can find social media connected to my blog. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Instagram, but uh, and I'm always happy to receive emails from readers and listeners. So reach out to me. I'm always happy to get your messages, and I I reply to every message, even if it takes me a little while to get back to people. Awesome, and yeah, Chrissy is a great resource to just kind of pick her brain or talk to. She's always responding. Um, so definitely, and if this is something that's been a little bit fast. The nice thing about the VIPL access, you can listen to this as many times as you want. Um, and there are is will also be detailed notes in the notes section as well for you. Um, so you can take your own, but there also will be detailed notes breakdown of this as well. So lots of information thrown at you. Um, definitely listen to it a few different times to kind of get it to go. And make sure you take some time to connect with Chrissy on her blog um, or through her social media channels. So Chrissy, I want to thank you for this masterclass in um, informal trusts and um, for all of your time for this. Thank you. It was my pleasure.